0: friends, I've got a very, very special episode in the works for you today. But before everything starts up, I did want to mention a few items. First, birthday wishes, both to the late Kirsten Flagstad and the very much still alive and vibrant Helen Donut. I'll be featuring the latter in an upcoming episode next season, so I'm not playing any musical selections today from her. Also, big congratulations to Angel Blue for her courageous stance in withdrawing from her scheduled appearance at the Arena di Verona as Violetta because of their unjustifiable stance in presenting white artists in what she refers to as blackface. Like former President Obama, my position on this... Thorny topic is evolving, and what may have been allowable even a few short decades ago really now needs to be reconsidered, and kudos to Angel Blue for bringing this issue to the forefront. And by the way, curses upon that other soprano who proudly posts photos of herself in defiant blackface. This is a very special episode today. I do want to mention to those of you who wish to support the podcast that you can go, as always, to patreon.com countermelody where you can make a pledge of your support. To the health and sustenance of the podcast, which is reaching the end of its third season, I have not missed one single week of posting since I began, and I hope to be able to continue that trend. At any rate, many thanks for your support, and now, fasten your seatbelts for a fabulous birthday tribute. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. And now, this week's episode. I have not yet done a full episode on Eleanor Stieber, and you might well ask, Why the hell not? To which I respond,
1: I don't know.
0: But anyway, today's is a very special and, dare I say, unique glimpse into the life and career of Eleanor Stieber. She was born on July 17th. What year was she born? 1914 and died on October 3rd, 1990. Since this is a celebratory episode, let's kick off with something completely ebullient Victor Herbert's Italian street song from Naughty Marietta. In this 1951 recording, Eleanor Stieber is led by Percy Faith and accompanied by his orchestra and chorus. this is a special episode, let me explain. One of my dearest friends is the enterprising choral musician, conductor, and all-around musical mover and shaker, Michelle Osterley. For those of you who don't know Michelle, she founded and conducted the Manhattan Girls Chorus, which had a brief but stunning run of successes. Over the past, I would say, probably 15 years, she is also, as I discovered a number of years ago, the stepdaughter of today's subject, Eleanor Stieber, and as such, she has graciously recorded her impressions and memories of Eleanor Stieber, which I will be sharing with you over the course of the podcast. I guess I would call this an exclusive, so, (laughs) wow, exciting because she presents a unique viewpoint and insight into this artist. I'll let her kick off the episode. Here's Michelle.
1: Hello, everyone, and greetings from London. My name is Michelle Osterly, and I'm speaking to you from the cellar of a 200-year-old home as we're going through a pretty major heat wave here in London. and This is my attempt to speak to you in a nice, cool place about someone that I have deeply, deeply loved. Eleanor Steber, who happened to be my stepmother. I'd like to thank Daniel, my dear, dear friend, for inviting me to contribute to this podcast. I'm very grateful to you, Daniel. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone who's listening. I am extremely grateful that there continues to be an interest in Eleanor and her glorious, glorious voice, which is an understatement. <laughs> and to know a little bit more about this woman who is oftentimes quite mysterious, I'm imagining to those of you who were fans of hers. She was indeed a very complex person, but my primary thoughts of her are those of a a person who loved deeply and felt passionately about everything she touched, including me. I have only fond memories of her. Some of them are quite humorous, some of them are quite dramatic, but I want everyone to know what an extremely loving person she was. It's etched in my memory the times when Eleanor and my father would drive to pick me up and take me back to Long Island. As always, they arrived with bravado. Eleanor in complete makeup, perfect hair, perfect dress, generally a long dress, a muumuu, and perfectly polished nails. She never went anywhere without makeup, hair, nails, dress, and my father was part of that driving force for caring about how she presented herself in public and her image. In fact, he was the one who generally did her hair and makeup and made many of her costumes. He was a man of many talents, was quite a renaissance man. And they would arrive in this giant white convertible car to pick me up. And here I am, little girl. This trip started when I was about four years old. And they'd come to Flint, Michigan, where I lived with my mother and two siblings in a small track house, just slightly on the wrong side of the tracks in Flint and they'd approach the house and let me tell you cars stopped heads turned people stopped that's the way it always was with Eleanor and my father these two extremely attractive people that were not dressed in the manner of those you'd see when you go to your local market or any place in the community and I remember them coming and my poor mother would be sent to the sofa to sleep while they went in her room and took her bed. I I can't even imagine how that must have felt. But she adored Eleanor and uh, was very, very kind to her. And Eleanor was also kind to my mother as well, which I was very grateful for. They'd pick me up in their white convertible. And this is back in the time when Seatbelts were not used. I don't even know if there were any in the car. And Eleanor's makeup case was always placed in the middle of the front seat, and that's where I'd sit so I could see the road in front of me. Or I would sit on Eleanor's lap. She'd hold me tightly, and I'd I'd fall asleep, nestled between her bosoms, (laughs) as we called them back then. And I felt loved. I felt deeply loved by her.
0: we just heard was the beautiful lullaby from madama butterfly in a 1949 studio recording with eleanor stieber and Jean madeira heard briefly as suzuki i'm going to do a very brief biographical sketch supplemented by musical excerpts featuring eleanor stieber in some of her most dare i say iconic roles Eleanor Stieber was born in Wheeling, West Virginia, and grew up in a musical family. She was particularly close to her mother, who was herself an amateur singer. Eleanor was equally gifted, as Michelle tells us, in both piano and voice, and in fact, when she went to the New England Conservatory, her intention was to study piano. But she was also studying voice with a man named William Whitney, who persuaded her that singing was the way to go. Praise the great goddess for that, because look what she gave the world in return. William Whitney gave Steber a very, very strong technical grounding. And in fact, I think this is one of the big reasons for her vocal longevity, as well as Her absolutely seamless vocal technique. Her operatic debut was as Zenta in 1936, when she was aged only 21 years old. Wow. From thence, after that debut, she went to New York to study with the Heldon tenor Paul Althouse. And in 1940, she won first prize at the Metropolitan Opera Auditions of the Air, where she sang this aria, which clinched the wind for her, Ernanin Volami. This is heard in a 1950 recording with Fausto Cleva leading the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. <laughs> took place the same year that she had won the Met competition, in 1940. The role was Sophie in Richard Strauss's der Rosenkavalier. Six years later, she appeared on a live broadcast of the opera, and I'm going to play you a short portion of the presentation of the Rose with Risa Stevens as Octavian and Fritz Busch leading the orchestra. I have never heard a Sophie with such clarity and power ever before, and God knows there are some great Sophies out there, including Birthday Girl Helen Donut. This is unlike any other version of Sophie that I've ever heard. And bear in mind, please, that this is live. Such a wide range of roles, it's almost mind-numbing to consider her versatility. She was probably most celebrated as a Mozart singer. She sang in the Met Premiere of Entführung aus dem Serail, which was done in English as, I think they called it the Seraglio, but abduction from the Seraglio. She's left a studio recording of the big Constanza aria, and it is a stunner. Other of her Mozart roles were Don Elvira first, then graduating to Don Anna. She also sang in a celebrated production of Così fan tutte at the Met, which was done in English translation. There's a famous studio recording of that. I'm going to play you a live performance of her Fior from 1955. I'm not playing the Come Scoglio but rather the Perpietà, or as it's called here, Oh, forgive me, dear beloved. A superb Verdi interpreter, and I would suggest ideally suited to the role of Violetta, which she also sang at the Met and other places, including Lyric Opera of Chicago, where she made a series of very important and significant appearances, including in their very, very first production, where she also sang her first Donanna. But now let's hear a moment just a moment from her Violetta in a live 1949 performance. This follows directly upon the scene with Giorgio Germont, where Violetta has determined that she indeed must leave her young and naive lover Alfredo behind, much against her own better judgment. She's just writing the dear John, or the dear Alfredo, letter. When Alfredo, in the personage of Giuseppe Di Stefano comes in, and we hear her impassioned plea to Alfredo that he always love her as much as she loves him. <laughs>
2: E scritto mi lasciava, però l'attendo. Che qui mi sorprenda, lascia che
0: soprano and tenor for the ages. This is a 1946 radio recording. From The Voice of Firestone, with Eleanor Stieber and Jussi Bierling singing The Miserere from Il Trovatore. I don't believe that Stieber ever sang Leonora on the stage, but she did sing in concert performances of this opera, and she would have made a stunning Leonora, as evidenced in this wonderful radio recording. I will only briefly mention that both of these remarkable artists were alcoholics. And though Yussi Bierling has been dealt with much more kindly in retrospect, Eleanor Steber remains criticized and indeed reviled by many for her own struggles with alcohol, a situation which Michelle addresses later in the program.
2: The bronze the pion
0: began expanding outside of the Met into Europe. She made appearances at Kleinborn, Edinburgh, Vienna, and, as we are about to hear, both the Maggio Musicale in Firenze and Bayreuth. She took part in a legendary production of La Fanciulla del West at the Maggio Musicale, under the baton of Dimitri Mitropoulos, who was one of her most Significant conductor colleagues. When she went to sing in Firenze, evidently she was jumping into the role and made a valiant and indeed superhuman contribution in that most difficult of parts. Here is just a moment from the very end of the opera as Minnie and Dick Johnson, or Ramirez, here in the person of Mario del Monaco, ride off, literally, into the sunset. This performance took place in June 1954. summer, 1953, Eleanor Stieber made her single appearance at the Bayreuth Festival, singing one of only a handful of Wagner roles that formed part of her repertoire, that of Elsa in Lohengrin. This was an enormous triumph for Eleanor Stieber, and thank goodness for all of us that this performance was recorded live and released on the London Decca label. She is the Elsa of one's dreams. I have very rarely heard anyone else who even comes close. There are a few, but Eleanor Stieber is right up there with the very greatest. This is a moment from the second act confrontation between Elsa and Ortrud, played in this instance by that towering dramatic soprano Astrid Varnay, who, unlike Stieber... Was appeared frequently at Bayreuth. This is the moment in which Elsa expresses pity for Ortrud because she can only see the evil in things, not of course recognizing that Ortrud indeed represents the face of evil. This is a stunning moment, and the orchestra is conducted by Josef Kaiderbert. <laughs> that we always think of steeper these days as being a Mozart singer, primarily. But when we talk about vocal categories, who's often paired with Mozart, but Richard Strauss. Though she is not so well remembered as being a Strauss singer, we've already heard her stunning Sophie in Rosenkavalier, and she went on, just a very few short years later, to also give very memorable performances of the Marschallin in the same opera. Yet another of her momentous accomplishments at the Met was her portrayal in the Met premiere of Richard Strauss's Arabella, which was done in an English translation when it was first produced there. I'm going to play you just a very short excerpt from the second act duet between Arabella and the mandrika, her older suitor, of the great Canadian bass baritone George London. I should mention here the recent demise of his widow, Nora London, who devotedly cared for her husband in his final illness and later ran the foundation that has supported so many young singers. Let us spare a thought for Nora London, and meanwhile I will be featuring George London in an upcoming Counter Melody episode, most likely next season. So again, stay tuned. Though he doesn't quite reach the final note at the end of this duet, he was the mandrika of one's dreams, I would suggest, as is Stieber, an exceptional Arabella, one who ranks, in my opinion, up there with the greatest Arabella of all, Lisa della Casa, who of course eventually sang it many times at the Met. The orchestra in this excerpt is led by Rudolf Kempe. did not present Frau ohne Schatten in the 1950s. They would have been able to cast with singers like Ingeborg, Elisabeth Hüngen, any number of helden tenors, and it all could have been headed by Eleanor Stieber as the Kaiserin. She did sing an abbreviated version of the opera under the baton of Karl Böhm in Europe, again in the summer of 1953. And we have recorded evidence, shall I say, from two different performances that she gave that summer. And here is just, again, a very brief portion of the Empress's awakening scene. But you can hear that this role has very rarely been sung with such mastery and insight. mentioned that, I think I mentioned, that this tribute to Eleanor Steber is going to take place in two separate episodes, because there's so much material to cover, and because... Michelle has so many interesting things to say, and in the second episode we will talk at great length about Eleanor's assumption of the title role in Samuel Barber's 1958 opera Vanessa, which, incidentally, was set to a libretto by Giancarlo Menotti, his lover, musical partner, and friend. But that's coming up next week. The point is that as the 50s wore on, and as the reign of Rudolf Bing stretched through those years, Stieber often found herself being overlooked and undervalued, and she was pretty damn pissed at the Met. And on the 10th of October, 1958, she went to Carnegie Hall and performed a mind-blowing recital. Which included two very challenging Mozart arias, two scenes from Die Frau Schatten, another series of bravura arias. God, I can't even remember. I think she sang Les Nuits d'été, Knoxville, Summer of 1915, which she had commissioned from Samuel Barber a number of years previously. I mean, what she sang on this recital just boggles the mind that she could just go out there and do it, but she was that solid a musician and singer that she did the entire thing fearlessly and so, so memorably. This performance was recorded and released on her own private label, which Michelle references in her portion. But here is part of Elvira's mad scene from Ipuritani as performed by Steber and her pianist Edwin Biltcliffe on that memorable occasion in the fall of 1958.
2: <laughs> walk home.
0: setting premiere at the Met, and that was singing the role of Marie in the Met's first production of Wozzeck, which took place in 1959. She was reunited there with the conductor Karl Böhm, with whom she had so memorably performed the Kaiserin a few years prior. But to round off this portion of the program, I'm just going to play you a short excerpt from the Bible scene from the third act. What I want to point out to you is her unique way of approaching the Sprechstimme in this role. She really intones each notated Sprechstimmen note on the pitch, but creates also the impression of an almost illiterate woman trying to make out the words in the Bible. And it's all capped with a stunning high C. I submit to you that Eleanor Steber was one of the greatest Marie's in the history of this opera. <laughs> going to speak more about her summers at Melody Hill, about Eleanor Stieber, about her father's marriage to Eleanor Stieber, about her upbringing in general, and the influence that Eleanor had on her life, an influence which continues to be felt by my dear friend up to the present day.
1: They would drive me to a place that had a name, Melody Hill. That's the home where Eleanor lived and also my father during this period of time. The house was built by a man who was a sea captain. And so my bedroom happened to be, it looked like a berth from a ship. It had a round opening that had brass covering the inside of the opening, wood paneling and porthole windows. I'd go into this room and I'd feel like I was on an exotic voyage somewhere. The house was quite dramatic. Everything about Eleanor and my father was dramatic. In this house, there were two nine-foot Steinway Grand Pianos, tremendous lead glass windows. I, don't, I can't even begin to know how high the ceilings were. And there was a balcony that looked down into the living room. And on that balcony, a life-size oil painting of Eleanor as Vanessa. And the painting on either side had beautiful, heavy, red velvet drapes, and there was a spotlight perfectly placed in the middle of the portrait. There were other life-size oil paintings as well throughout the house. There was a table that I was absolutely fascinated with that had batons it of every conductor that Eleanor had ever performed with, and a lovely music box, it was a large music box that We'd wind up, and I loved listening, to with Eleanor. But one of my favorite things to do, of course, was to lie underneath one of the pianos, and I would lay my head on Paco, her first dog, who's a Cocker Spaniel, and had the softest ears, and I would just, I remember so clearly having my cheek pressed against Paco's ear under the piano and listening to Eleanor sing. She would accompany herself, and... She began as a pianist and she was quite accomplished and then started singing. Very impressive to hear a singer who was so skilled be almost equally skilled at the keyboard. Summers at Melody Hill were vibrant and every sense was ignited. There were always some sort of smells coming from the kitchen. Eleanor and my father were excellent cooks and every meal was. Multiple courses and things that children my age normally were never exposed to, like lobster, fresh lobster. We'd watch the lobsters run around on the floor and the dog Paco. And then there was Mimi barking at the dogs. They thought it was so funny until they picked the lobsters up and threw them in the boiling water. <laughs> There'd be things like aspect and sturgeon, and caviar, steak and kidney pie, which was god-awful. When I was punished for not eating by my father. And the dinner table was always set with silver and crystal and china. Of course, the china had a picture of Melody Hill and the name Melody Hill on it. That's what everyone has, right? A china that has a picture of your home. I love the fact that I was in charge of lighting the candles at night for dinner. There was always it was always candlelight and I loved going into the drawer with all of the different colors of candles and deciding which candles would go on the table that evening. And then sitting there at the table, the dining table, with perfect posture and manners, which were insisted by my father and Eleanor. I wasn't allowed to have my arms on the table or to have the soup spoon touch my lips. I was to hold it sideways and tip the spoon just perfectly into my mouth. I was quite often alone, and how magical to be a young child and have Melody Hill as your playground. Looking out into the woods, there were several acres, I I believe I read somewhere that there were seven acres, which was a perfect place for a child to wander alone in the summer. But I primarily remember being by myself and having this huge world in front of me where I could explore both in nature and the woods. I spent a lot of time climbing trees and playing the fields and gathering berries and nuts and all sorts of things, imagining that I was a pioneer woman in these beautiful woods that surrounded Melody Hill. I go back to that place often, very, very often. I see myself and remember reciting certain things, wandering in the woods and hearing the ocean crashing. so fondly being with Eleanor in the garden with her and her Morris Minor going to the beach. She loved that car and we'd pack it up in the back with all kinds of toys and baskets and shovels and blankets and things and we'd go down to the beach and collect shells. And she encouraged me a lot to be creative in all regards, not only music, but also art. And I always had some sort of project she'd set up for me with painting or decoupage or taking these beautiful baskets and decorating them with shells and glitter and all kinds of things it was a fabulous playground and a wonderful place as a child to be a little mouse in the corner and hear all of the adults and the singing the glorious glorious singing it was also scary it was they were big personalities with lots of emotion and as I'm sure most of you know Eleanor and my father were both alcoholics I suppose one of the things that I hope that people will be more compassionate after hearing this podcast in regard to Eleanor and her alcoholism, it's a disease, and it's something that is misunderstood. And I'm not making excuses for Eleanor and some of her behaviors, but I simply ask for people to try to understand this disease, to have more compassion and to stop being so judgmental. A lot was asked of Eleanor, and I believe that there was a lot of gray when it came to what was reality and what was fantasy. And I'm not entirely certain that there was really a difference when it came to Eleanor. I'm not sure she ever knew where one started and one ended because she was constantly in the spotlight everywhere she went she couldn't go anywhere without being recognized and noticed and made to feel i'm sure as though she was on stage i have a vivid memory of going to the little bodega with her in port jefferson just to get a loaf of bread or a carton of milk. And at that time in my life, I was very much of an introvert, extremely shy. I didn't like any attention on me, which is rather difficult, <laughs> as I'm sure you can imagine from what I've shared thus far. And I remember her breaking out in an aria, full voice, in this little tiny little shop. And I would be absolutely... <laughs> horrified i remember trying to hide in the aisles Only that didn't work too well for me and of course she'd always call me so it was impossible to pretend as though we weren't together of course i'd give anything now to be present in that scenario again it was a beautiful thing to see though how generous she was with her talent and how she desired to bring joy and beauty everywhere she went and everything she did whether it be her garden beautiful home-cooked meals that she made with my father, way that her home was beautifully appointed. Everything, every detail, every single detail was considered. Perhaps that's one of the most important things I learned from her, is how vitally important details are in life, both in music and art, but just in life in general, and certainly in music. And you can hear it in her voice, in the way she sang a phrase, in the way she sang an individual word, consonants, vowels. More than any singer I've ever heard in my lifetime, her diction was always, always perfect. And the reason it was perfect is because she cared about the text that she was singing. It was vitally important to her. And she put a great deal of time and effort and energy into understanding the text and and being in character and communicating the text from her entire soul, her entire being. She believed that the voice was her instrument, but that it wasn't just the voice itself, but her entire being was her instrument and her entire being did exude incredible emotion, passion, always. It didn't matter if she was singing something that was sacred or an opera or an art song, it didn't matter. My father did a lot of wonderful things for and with Eleanor, but he also did a lot of destructive things. And I don't want to make this about him, but just know that her life with my father was not easy. Because I had mentioned he was also an alcoholic, so you can only imagine the kind of conversations that took place in Melody Hill, loud screaming matches and arguments and fits that happened. My father was known for having affairs and had them throughout his marriage with my mother and with Eleanor, and then of course his other two wives. <sighs> and that was difficult for everyone. And everyone was aware. Eleanor finally had had enough of my father spending her money. He everything was so extravagant. They had to have the best of everything. We were always chauffeured around in limousines, and we had people. <laughs> There are always people, which was, for me, this girl, the little girl from Flint, Michigan, who basically raised, I raised myself because my siblings, as I mentioned, were older and off doing their teenage things when I was growing up. And my mother was working double shifts without any help from my father. I was alone and I, I raised myself. was often hungry and at school i'd be pulled out of class and fed by my teachers and they would comb my hair and then i'd go off to melody hill in the summer with the two nine-foot steinway grand pianos and the life-size oil paintings and the giant stage on the grounds and the extravagant dinner parties, and we were going to the New York World's Fair. Eleanor was performing in the West Virginia Pavilion. But I just remember that. It was a magical. I saw, yes, all of a sudden I was treated like I was someone special, and people weren't making fun of me or treating me like I was some helpless child who was abandoned, and I was somebody special, I guess.
0: let me just make brief reference to the recordings with which I supplemented Michelle's beautiful narrative. First was a 1950 recording of the Eric Coates song, Bird Songs at Eventide. Second was Eleanor Steber in a 1956 live recital performing the second verse of Danny Boy, which I did because She sings it with unparalleled intensity and beauty. And finally, as Michelle referred to Eleanor's performance at the West Virginia Pavilion in the New York World's Fair of 1964, we heard a 1950 Voice of Firestone telecast of Eleanor singing the second verse of Carry Me Back to Old Virginia by African-American composer James A. Bland. Michelle will be returning with further insights and revelations in an episode that we'll post sometime over the next month. But I want to end today's exceptional episode with the conclusion of Samuel Barber's stunning vocal tone poem, Knoxville, Summer of 1915, which Eleanor Stieber commissioned and premiered and recorded the first recording of this now essential work. She re-recorded the piece on the stand label. This was a live performance from Trenton on the 13th of January, 1962. She is in stunning voice, and the care with which she interprets the text has never been more clearly intoned or felt. And I wanted to round off the episode with this moment in particular because it represents A benediction upon a family. The family that Michelle describes may not have been a traditional one, such as depicted in James Agee's prose poem here, but I suggest that Eleanor Stieber bestows upon all of us an extraordinary benediction here.
1: Because those memories and those thoughts have energy that continue to live on. And I want the memory of Eleanor as being one of the most beautiful voices of all time, for her to be remembered for her gift, but also for her to be remembered by her loving, loving soul.
0: today